Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from museum directors to art dealers. And it's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with David Lewis. David is the principal and director of David Lewis Gallery, a contemporary art gallery on Manhattan's Lower East Side that he opened in 2013. He represents a wide variety of artists, from John Boscovich to Kyle Thurman. He's participated in multiple art fairs staged by Art Basel, Freeze, and other presenters, and is among the most innovative dealers at work today. The foundation I run, Souls Grown Deep, has worked with David in placing works by the artist Thornton Dial. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining the conversation on Art Scoping. Uh, very good to be here, Max. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And how are things going at home with this pandemic surrounding us all? Uh, as well as can be expected, I think. Good. We all need that. And that optimism extends possibly not beyond your household. That is to say, the art market is certainly undergoing disruptions that are no less dramatic than the disruption of other sectors of the economy with galleries going online and fairs canceled and staff laid off. What's happening with your gallery? A radically different and completely disrupted environment. So we did lay staff off and we're closed we had just opened an important exhibition of John Boscovich, which is closed as well. But we're working remotely and we're trying to stay focused on the present and what can be accomplished in the present, but also, and I think more importantly, on setting up and looking into what the future looks like. So we'll be well positioned for that. Are you talking to other dealers about their worlds or do you guys all live in, in individual caves? No, we, we, talk, we talk collegially among ourselves and always and especially now. It's a hard conversation though because nobody really knows whether dealers, friends, family, clients, nobody has any framework in which to navigate. So the conversations quickly become conversations about ideology or metaphysics and quickly lead into sheer conjecture, which suits me fine. But it's very hard for anyone to really know. It's unprecedented for everyone. Older people and wiser, cooler heads might have a sense of what the previous recessions or what a recessionary cycle looks like. But nobody really has a sense of this because it's unprecedented. I am still stuck on your saying that you guys talk about metaphysics <laughs> because <laughs> the art museum directors I talk to and hear from are talking about extremely mundane, prosaic features of reopening and planning. And you're saying you veer off into larger spheres of thought. Is that what happens? Let me clarify. Of course, we don't <laughs> talk so much about metaphysics. A museum has a public a relationship to a public that a gallery, especially a small gallery, such as my own gallery, does not have. We don't have a board that we have to satisfy. We don't have an attendance that we have to think about. We don't have public measures that we need to be responsible for in the same way. So I think sometimes one of the things that people forget about the gallery system is that even a large gallery is quite small as a business. So there, the questions of how we will reopen or what those measures look like, they're hard to even think about because the real focus is actually the conversation about art fairs and whether or not there will be art fairs and what that might look like. More than metaphysics, I would say we talk about art fairs. And they came upon you like a clattering of hooves a few years ago 
disrupting what had been until that time, a fairly stable approach to selling art, which was based on your carbon footprint. What are you saying with each other about the future of art fairs? You have to be in a somewhat privileged or even lordly position to pronounce as some that we're seeing the end of the art fair system. I personally don't agree, and I wouldn't even know how to assess that. I don't know that anyone knows that. So the question becomes a very local question about the upcoming Basel Fair in September and the fall schedule. And the question of, since so much business is done at art fairs, what will, quote unquote, back to normal or business look like in the season ahead? Nobody really seems to know. I I think with each passing day or week, there's less and less confidence that normal is around the corner. I think in March, there was a sense, or there was a plausible sense that by the fall, we'll dust ourselves off and get back to work. We're having this conversation at a moment where nobody really has any clue of where we're at and where we're going. And in some ways, that's very interesting. I think, and this leads to the the broader conversation, I'm actually very optimistic about the art market. I also want to say the art market is always, unlike, let's say the S&P 500, there, there is an index. You can watch it on your phone. You can watch it on TV. There's a set of very clear macro information. The art market was never like that. It's many, many micro segmented markets that interact under a very opaque but sort of ballyhooed umbrella. But there are always many different markets. So the market, for example, for emerge, young emerging art has been very weak for the last five years or so relative to where it was previously. The art market at the higher end and for blue chip art and for certain identity-based practices has been very strong. So there are a lot of different currents that are always competing. And that's even more true in the new sort of pandemic mode. I hear stories about segments of the market which have completely collapsed. And other parts of the market, in my experience, even this past week, have been very robust. So it's hard for me to draw any generalizing conclusions, and I think it's too early. I don't think, though, that this is like 2008, although I would asterisk that, that I wasn't in the art business in 2008. So this is a little bit anecdotal. But we're not seeing an internal collapse of the financial system. We're seeing an external event that's pressuring people. My experience is that the collector class, or my experience thus far, is still relatively engaged. They're looking to see how to navigate this market, both socially and economically. They're looking to see what's okay in terms of risk and what's okay in terms of the new kind of social norms that are being carved out. But they're not out of the game. My general experience has been that the art market, although so few people participate that there's never any public pressure to regulate it because nobody really cares. In reviewing the financial impact of COVID-19, Sotheby's recently described its forecast as raising, quote, substantial doubt about the company's ability to continue as a going concern, end quote. And it wasn't that long ago that private dealers like yourself were presumably concerned about private sales by auction houses eroding their profitability. So what are you thinking today about the fate of auction houses and how it might affect your work? 
in general, a gallery in my position doesn't think very much about the fate of auction houses because the competition between private dealers and auction houses is generally speaking for very blue chip art at the top of the market. So I think that in a bull market, in a climate with a robust kind of speculative risk appetite, the gallery world and the auction world are, seem much more similar than they actually are. In this environment, there's actually a very positive chance to clarify how fundamentally different a gallery and an auction house are. Number one, an auction house is a mechanism for sales. A, sales is only a very, very small part of what a gallery does. And even within that small part, the gallery and the auction house have literally a different client. The client of the gallery ultimately is the artist. My job and my passion and my pride in all of this is working with artists, whether emerging artists to grow their careers, mid-career or later career artists to continue to cement what they've established and develop awareness or with an estate such as that of Thornton Dial which becomes a kind of art historical adventure, which is about changing an entire category of art historical perception and possibility. The auction house, on the contrary, their client is the seller. Their job is to get results for the seller. So the overlap in sales from the position of a collector, I can buy from gallery A or auction house B, is actually quite deceptive because you're looking at two entirely different kinds of orientation towards the whole enterprise of presenting and offering art for sale. What are the ways that you and your staff occupy yourselves that a listener might be surprised to learn that is not simply about sell, sell, sell? Again, the gallery world is itself a very stratified world and there are galleries and there are segments of the gallery world that are sell, sell, sell. If you think about an artist's career, essentially when an artist enters the market or begins his or her career, they're an unknown quantity. So it's pure creative adventure because there's no market, there's no, there's no symbolic or cultural value that has been accumulated yet. There's no museum awareness, there's no retrospective grandeur or cultural apparatus around it. Let's imagine it as a rainbow. You're at one end of the rainbow. So the only work at that beginning phase is creative. There's nothing but creativity. There's nothing but storytelling. There's nothing but hustle, calling people, sharing, enthusiasm. There's a kind of belief that's necessary at that point. There's a kind of faith. There's a kind of willingness to jump in and, and originate ideas and fight for ideas and test them. And then as an artist develops in his, her, their career, that starts to shift and you start to get market mechanisms, career mechanisms, museum support, and so on and so forth. Eventually, by the end of the career, the story is all sort of baked into the cake. And then you're at the blue chip auction level where it is much more a market and a speculative phenomenon. I'm not putting that part of it down in any way, but since the gallery is younger, and since, since my career and the career of so many of the artists I work with are younger, we're, we're very much, and my orientation is very much towards the creative part of it, towards the narrative part of it, the ideas and the very thrilling chance to make people aware or change their perceptions around certain things. And sales is 
only really the end result of that creative process. It's almost an organic accumulation of a kind of creative journey. There's an analogy, David, in how the art media and the mainstream media report on the art market and the art world, which is that the obsession is with the main huge art museums with massive endowments in New York City. And they are seen as exemplars and they're seen as the leaders of a, an arena, which actually is hundreds of museums with very modest footprints, modest endowments, modest attendance. And yet that's the attention of the media. The same thing obtains with the big four mega galleries. They tend to dominate a lot of the coverage in mainstream media and to some extent in the art media as well. How does that create a problem for you professionally, personally, intellectually, if so much of the energy is devoted to following a small handful of constituents within this very large ecosystem? It doesn't because that, as, as you were saying, the, meg the mega galleries are dominating a segment. It gets a lot of the easy, broad attention. But again, I'm in a different part of that arc. Artists, for example, don't care very much about the mega galleries. The conversations that I'm most interested in having, which are the conversations about ideas with the people that have actually given the majority of their lives to the ideas. And those are the artists and then the writers and the curators and the people that are closest to the moment and the act, the act and the project of creation, none of that is really taking place at the mega gallery level. A lot of the commerce is taking place there. It seems that the mega galleries are drawing an undue amount of attention, but that's something of an illusion because one of the sort of rubrics by which I'm guided is what do artists care about? That's what I'm interested in. They're the ones that are ultimately going to be leading the conversation and they're the ones in a generation to come, it will be the artists of the next generation who look back on our landscape and determine what they want to fight for and what they want to wrestle with and what they want to tear down and build up. And very little of that is happening at the mega gallery level. Helping along an artist's career, an artist you believe in, an artist whose aspirations and potential is something that you're prepared to invest in. How much of the satisfaction for you as a gallerist or dealer, if you prefer, comes from the arc of their career moving in a certain direction versus discovering someone who makes their way very quickly? I think the former is where the majority of, of the satisfaction is for me because it's not a binary switch of discovery arrival. The possibilities for art are so endless and so global now that there's always more to learn and more projects to do and more awareness and possibilities. So I'm glad you brought that up because I would say the majority of my motivation and my satisfaction is in the relationships with artists and in the long-term collaboration and seeing what they have to offer grow. The active sale and the acquisition by a collector, how important is it to you that that purchaser is someone whom you have confidence will treat the artist's work with the deference and understanding and respect that you've invested? And how much do you just let go and say, it's no longer mine, it's theirs? I think both. I think it depends on the moment. I think it depends on the work. I think there's a, a reality that it's a wonderful privilege and an honor to work with a collector who is going to be as passionate and invested in an artist's work as you or that artist might be. But it's also an exceptional quality. It's an exceptional case 
And I think it would also be a little bit naive or unrealistic to think that all collectors are going to go as deep into the journey as, as you might wish. So I would say it's a spectrum. And I, it also takes a lot of different players to make an artist's career in an active way. You, you need a kind of mixture of interests. And so that collector is roughly in a couple of categories then? Is it people who are buying because they have fallen in love with the practice of the artist and people who are looking at it as an investment? And then within that, of course, a spectrum. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think it's, I think it's fair, yeah. And you I, prefer, presumably, to sell to the former, but you also sell to the latter, I'm sure. Again, I don't think it's an either-or. I'm not in the investment part of the market. It gets a lot of the attention, but I think it's much smaller than people realize. I don't think there's anything wrong. In fact, I think it's a good thing that people imagine that something they invest in will accrue value over time. I think that's wonderful. And I like to share that with my clients. I think the idea of speculating or flipping is in a more aggressive and uncollaborative way is a different thing. And that I think I and a lot of dealers prefer to avoid. Do you think that art museums are driving as much of the agenda and conversation as they used to? And do you think they're being replaced to some extent by innovative art galleries? I think art museums are, are driving a lot of the agenda in tandem with the galleries and other cultural forces. So I don't know that any art museum has sort of the individual power that MoMA had 50 years ago, but that was an unusual and a much smaller moment than the one we're in now. I don't think they're cut out of the conversation in any way. I think the different pieces of the museum and gallery system seem to me to be working together fairly nicely. I'm just curious whether you think that museums have to some extent ceded terrain to more adventurous galleries. I think they have, but I'm not sure that I would use the word ceded because the museum is always the receiver. A gallery should be leading the conversation. A gallery is smaller, more nimble, faster. A gallery has less responsibility. I think there's a kind of yin and yang between the galleries and the museums. It doesn't seem to me positive to imagine a situation where museums were leading and galleries were following, although that does take place. Galleries should be experimenting and presenting possibilities. I mean, the museum, it's that which gives credence to what a gallery tests. So that's the model that I always work with. A gallery tries something, a museum then can say, yes, let's pump up the value of that conversation. I have laments that more museums aren't responding in the way that I want to the information or the ideas I'm presenting, but I don't have any structural problem with museums receiving and then choosing an amen chorus to the more adventurous gallery ideas. But of course, then it doubles back. You have something like the Whitney Biennial, which puts information out and then galleries respond to that. So you've got a very wide-ranging background and a sense of the art world, which is nuanced. How did you begin as a dealer? What led you into this world? I was an academic. I was an art historian. And then I was a critic while I was in graduate school. And I was writing. And I was living in Europe at the time. I was living in Paris. First of all, it was a wonderful place to be an art historian, for obvious reasons. And it was also a small community for contemporary art. So I was able to quickly get a sense of the local landscape and then the wider kind of European constellation. 
and the European kind of contemporary art world with its Kunsthallas and regional museums and so forth. In my time doing this, I was increasingly attracted to the gallery world. It seemed to me like, and this, this relates to what you were asking, it seemed to me like the younger, more adventurous galleries were the most exciting places to be. And I found that as a critic, I found that I was responding to information the galleries put out. And I came to a point where I said, well, I, I want to be on the front side of that conversation. I want to be the host and I want to invite guests into my house, however small and modest that might be. I don't always want to be the guest writing or reading about or learning about these artists. I want to be at the beginning of that conversation. So it did seem to me that galleries, and this wasn't an intellectual thing, it was an emotional thing, that the gallery was where it was at. And that's what led me here. How did you get started in New York? I started a partnership with a gallery in Paris called Belicia Hurtling. And at that point, a lot of their artists were in New York. And I think they were looking to expand into New York. So we created a gallery partnership in New York. I had no training in the gallery world. I jumped in as partner into this gallery which almost instantaneously dissolved into a hot, fiery mess. I extracted myself from that smoldering wreckage as fast as I could and reset on my own. And then here we are. You, therefore, in Paris, were living in a world, in a European context, in which the divisions between critic, professor, curator, dealer, they're not as clear. There's a lot of give and take and coming and going, whereas in our country, there tends to be more delineated tracks. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think so. I think Paris was, and I assume is, an absolutely wonderful place to be an art critic and an academic, the sense of the academy there and the history of letters and even the history of ekphrastic writing about art and theoretical inquiry into painting, it was a wonderful, wonderful place for those few years and for that moment of my career, proto-career as that was. There's a sense when you're a critic in New York, you're a critic. When you're a critic in Paris, there's a little bit more of a kind of tradition that you're working in and a little bit, I think, more possibility. And how do you nurture in the States a connection to these larger ideas that engage you and fascinate you? The crush of commercial obligation, it's real and it's time consuming. Where do you find sustenance? The short answer is with the artists. I don't perceive it as a crush of commercial obligation. I perceive it rather as almost the manifesting or the making literal and three-dimensional of those ideas. So what I had felt in Paris and in graduate school was I had a lot of time to read and write, and that was a great pleasure. But I felt a, an insubstantiality to those ideas. Whereas in the gallery, it's like a real-world laboratory to play with and test out those ideas. I wrote my PhD on Francis Picabia, and I was very interested in translation of Heideggerian ideas in France, which led to post-structuralism and specifically to Deleuze. So that was a very, very fleshed out intellectual commitment of mine at the time. And I wrote about that in my PhD, whereas in the gallery, one can actually physically try it. You can actually try with artists, what would a philosophy of difference make possible? What would a modality of interaction that's based on difference rather than dialectics look like. You have the chance to actually play with this in three dimension with objects, with practices, with ideas in real time. So, so the gallery is for me the most intellectually stimulating thing possible. 
But of course, I still get time or I still try to find time to read and think about these things. But the gallery really grows out of it. It's not pressed upon the needs to make it real. The needs to make it real are actually what I think in many ways inspires and stimulates me. Steeped as you were in post-structuralism and deconstruction, you came back to this soil, that universe which began to pollinate in American academic departments in art history has to some extent lost its plot. It was it in its definitely lost its plot. <laughs> so where do you see the university system going as a wellspring of thinking about the visual arts that you find stimulating? Ooh. So the first thing I would say is that I was late in the great age of theory in the American Academy, which really started in the 70s, while these figures were still in the last phase of their career, which was this amazing translation to the Anglo-American Academy. And then with Yale, with the deconstructive circle, Paul DeMond and Derrida and so forth at Yale in the 70s. And then the 80s, and then the kind of that translation into a lot of cultural and queer theory in the 90s. By the time I showed up in the aughts, it was very, very late in that cultural cycle. I was sort of one of the last to invest in that, I think, because then very quickly what you had is speculative realism an object-oriented ontology, which also coincided politically with the very sort of end of the Obama years. Then, right around 2015, you had a massive shift from theory, which I guess at that point would have been seen no longer as, as a tool of liberation, but as a product of a white ivory tower, and a shift into identity politics and post-colonial theory. And so I, I feel like that has been, for the last three or four years, not only the emphasis, but the all-consuming kind of intellectual agenda of the universities and the museums, and therefore at the galleries. So I think that with the pandemic, we might see that shift again. But I would actually say that it's, it's exactly the same project, because the project of post-structuralism it was always a project of liberation, both personal and societal. And ultimately, the attraction to someone like Deleuze, it was always about the possibility of difference rather than hierarchy, rather than dialectical structures of right and wrong. That was always the project. And I feel like so many wonderful things have happened in the last few years to allow conversations about identity and history to touch upon that. So I would actually say that for me, it, it's like a kind of prism where different aspects are lit at different times. Yeah, that's very helpful. And just in closing, if a young person is intrigued about entering the art world as a dealer, do you have advice that you might give someone who would be interested in pursuing that course? I'm not sure that I do because it was never something that I wanted or even thought about pursuing. The gallery and my profession is the end result of an almost 20-year process of intellectual inquiry and journey. And then it ended up here as a physical form and as a business. So I guess the only thing I could say is that for a young dealer, having a kind of identity and having something to say, I would say. But even that, I would say very guardedly because... One of the wonderful things about the art gallery form is that it can be almost anything. It can be a very personal vision where you find artists to collaborate. It can be a kind of empty and expansive realm in which the artist's voices are the loudest. In short, I'm not sure that I do have anything to say in terms of advice. And yet you do. 
and I thank you for it. And I'm grateful that you made some time today to connect with you in the middle of all of this and hear some larger ideas. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. We've been speaking today with David Lewis, principal and director of David Lewis Gallery in New York City. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.